Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. We live on a planet that's 4.6 billion years old, and as far as we know for now, it's the only planet that contains life. While life on Earth has been here for 3.7 billion years, we've only been around for a scant 2 million years. And yet, the impact we have made on this blue world and its living things has been immense and at times tragic as we've contributed to extinctions and habitat loss on an epic scale. And yet, we're also capable of thoughtfulness and compassion. Our guest is both thoughtful, compassionate, and an amazing writer. Esther Wolfson is the author of the new book, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species. She's a naturalist and writer who grew up in Scotland. She's been an artist in residence at the Aberdeen Center for Environmental Sustainability and is an honorary fellow in the Department of Anthropology at Aberdeen University. She joins us now from her home there. Esther Wolfson, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'd first like to know a bit about your background, because you live in Scotland, uh, and you've had some really interesting travels in your life. How, how did your family come to Scotland? Uh, my family originally came to Scotland from Lithuania at the end of the 19th century. There was a big um, influx of Jews from Eastern Europe at that time. And my family were among them. There is a story that uh, is told by a lot of Jewish families in Britain that they were actually on their way to New York and they either got off the ship at whatever port in, in um, Britain because they thought it was New York or else because they were so seasick after the journey that they decided to stay and not continue to, to America. So, I mean, I, one, never uh. knows the, one never knows the truth of these things, but... But wow. it's a, a sort of a myth that goes around. Anyway, that's that's how my family came came to uh, be in Scotland. Um, half my family from Edinburgh and half from Glasgow. Glasgow's on the west coast. Edinburgh's in the east. And you, most obviously from your books, uh, have a deep love of nature and the natural world. How did that come about for you? Was it something that you just always were interested in as a child? How did that come about for you? Not really. I was brought up in, in a city and, um, yeah, with most people, we had dogs and I was very fond of them and so on. But the connection really started when my family settled down, my, my children and husband and myself settled down. We moved around quite a lot. And as soon as we settled down, we began to kind of acquire animals. Somebody gave us... Um, some white doves um, because they had too many. We didn't know the first thing about them, but we decided that would be very nice, so we took them in. And that was kind of the beginning of the story because once you've got one pet or one bird particularly, people find a bird, they bring it to you. And that really is the story that um, the most significant um, happening was that some friends of my one of my daughters, they were in a, a camp uh, in Woodland near Aberdeen and found a fledgling rook, a member of the crow family, and didn't know what to do with, with this bird. And it was in the days before you could phone up somebody from a wood and say, what shall I do with this creature? They brought us this bird who was then with me for the next 31 years. And is that is that chicken? That's chicken. Oh. And it was observation of the behavior of this 
particular bird that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of intelligence, consciousness, uh, and everything else, sentience, everything else about the richness of the lives of other species. We also, I mean, we kept, we had parrots and pet rats and all sorts of things. Fortunately, all of them intelligent, fascinating species in and of themselves. But it was really this particular bird that she was so obviously a creature with agency that one could not just ignore the fact that there was something in the world that, that one had not understood before. And you, you wrote a beautiful book, um, which is on my next to read list called Corvus, about your relationship with, with chicken, especially. And what I found really quite moving was uh, you dedicate this new book, uh, Between Light and Storm, to chicken yeah. and, and addressed him as colleague, companion, and friend. Yes. And I, could you please just tell me a bit about how was he your colleague? Well, it lived in the house. I mean, it's it, a, quite a big house, and I've got this a big room in which I'm sitting at the moment, uh, which is the room in which I work. And she had a, a sort of large structure with perches and all the rest of it. I mean, there were, you know, it wasn't a cage; it was a house, and where she could wander in and out. And we spent many years together. I was writing; she was pottering about, doing what what crows do. And she would come and sit under my chair. And there was a kind of relation, a very, very unique relationship, I think. And as I was writing, she was my companion. And in fact, she died, as I say, at the age of 31, just as I was editing uh, the last book, shortly before the pandemic. And it was as if, I mean, she was, of course, by then very, for a bird, very old. And it was, yeah. It was just very sort of, um, nah, not symbolic, but uh, she had seen me through three, three books on the natural world, and I felt that she really was my colleague. Yes, and I'm I'm sorry, I referred to chicken as he. As oh she. no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I I love my animals, and I you know they are def definitely distinctive as he and she's, and it's important well, to to realize that. We didn't know for a long time what she was because oh. they're sexually dimorphic. Uh, not sexually dimorphic. So, you know, we weren't actually sure. And then one day she laid an egg and we thought, yes, uh -huh. <laughs> this is a sign. <laughs> there well, was no doubt after that. Thank you, Esther. Now I feel better about that. <laughs> um, and uh, most obviously, uh, she, uh, she was your friend. And oh. one of the things that I find fascinating is how uh, we can bond with animals as humans. Yeah. And of course, mostly that's with our family pets like dogs and cats and things like that. But but uh, birds, uh, people, I've never had a bird, but people that I know that have had birds get very, very bonded and attached to them. Could you explain uh, a little bit about what life is like with a bird? Well, of course, it depends what kind of bird. Um, I would talk particularly about Corvids, the crow family, and parrots. Who are very smart. Very, very smart. There's, um, uh, they have been called, there um, two people, well, one person now who works at Cambridge University called Professor Nikki Clayton, who's done a lot of work on Corvid intelligence. And she used to work with her husband, uh, Professor Nathan a a 
uh, um, Emery, and they always referred to parrots and crows as feathered primates because they are so intelligent. They are very similar to, to humans. And I think that if it's difficult for people because there, there's so much baggage attached to the idea of bird. You know, you still hear people talking about bird brains, meaning, oh, yeah. you know, you know, they're, you know like, that, they're stupid, meaning they're stupid. And in fact, they are, well, their, their brains are, are very much, very similar to ours in many ways. And their brain capacities are vast. And of course, with you know, what goes along with that is that they're excellent communicators. They have expectations. They, on, a, on Piaget's scale of um, attainment, say a magpie, which is uh, another kind of corvid, which is possibly one of the most intelligent, they have behavior similar to a six-year-old child. They have theory of mind and object permanence, all these things that people, you know, really would not imagine. You know, you're driving along and past a field of crows. You would never imagine that, that they have these capabilities. Are jays close to, to um, crows, corvids? Are they they're part of that family? Yeah, they're corvids. Because I have jays in my, my yard, and I feed birds and provide water for them. And we, yeah. we try to provide habitat as well, you know, plants that are, are good for them to have around here. And I find the jays to be endlessly fascinating to watch. Yes. I mean, they're like all corvids. They cache, you know, they hide things. Mm -hmm. And they have these very elaborate systems of, of hiding their food and of, um, well, particularly in autumn, their, their hippocampus, you know, that, that part of the brain expands in order to, that they can remember their sometimes hundreds of cache sites. They're very fascinating birds. They are. I have one Jay in particular that uh, he knows when my dogs are out and with me. And so when, when they're around, he kind of, you know, pretty much kind of keeps away. But when they're not around, when I'm by myself, he kind of hops up and gets within about 10 feet and yeah. just kind of hangs out, and it's yeah. just fascinating to watch him do his thing. And, and he's always got an eye on me and kind of checking out, what are you doing? And yeah. how, it's it's amazing. You can just tell this is a very intelligent bird. Yeah, and that bird will recognize you. Corvids are very good at recognizing, well, presumably other corvids, but certainly humans. And they will pick out particular humans from a crowd. I mean, there's a, a bit of research done, I think, in the University of Washington that that various people who had, I think that they tagged uh, Corvids or, you know, they, they'd put on ring, you know, leg rings or something like that. And these people who um, had done this to the crows were pursued through the campus by these crows shouting, I presume the crow equivalent of, there's that horrible person who who um caught me and, and tied my leg and they you know they they you know they picked them out of crowds and incredible birds have you have you come across um a very wonderful writer called bernd heinrich no he he has written some fantastic books about corbett he wrote a lovely book called ravens in winter and uh he writes a lot about um about well a lot about raven intelligence, which is very fascinating. He's got a lovely bit about 
testing his, uh, he kept ravens, testing to see if they could, whether or not they, they would recognize him. And he put on all sorts of crazy disguises and went into their enclosure. And the ravens would sit there and go, oh, look, it's him again. They'd rec- you know, uh, they were not fooled for a second. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I would like to ask you, what, what led to you wanting to write this book about humans' relations with animal species? And by animals, I mean all animals. Like, for yep. example, in the beginning of your book, and one of the things that like hooked me into wanting to read it, is you rescue a spider uh, you yeah. know, off the floor at the very beginning of the story. What, what led you to want to write this book? Well, I've written it. I wrote the book, a book about uh, the crow family, and then I wrote a book about urban species. And in that book, I was questioning why certain species are disregarded or um, reviled. And I kind of examined you know, those concepts. And I kind of just wanted to take the, the whole idea further. Why do we think these things? Why do we? Why do we value? one creature more than another why do we treat them as we do and the only way that i could see of doing it was going to go right back to the beginning to where we all our common ancestors and to history and to how humans first saw and portrayed animals and then to the way we have treated them and why we have felt ourselves able to do the things that we have done and the way I found to do was best to do that was to look at the history and history, philosophy, religion, and all the ways in which our Western ideas have been formed about our possible relationships with with other species. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Esther Wolfson, author of the new book, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species, as we discuss our relationship with the animal life that occupies this planet with us. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with Esther Wolfson, author of the new book, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species. One of the parts I found particularly fascinating, because it's just always interested me, is what what we can learn from caves and cave paintings and cave yeah. art. Um, and maybe art's not even the right word to use for it. Uh, it's It's part of of ritual it, it's fascinating what what do they mean what did they mean did they mean to the people that created those so can you talk a little bit about that, yeah. those explorations it's so interesting because in all different parts of the, of the world portrayals early portrayals of animals have been found in caves and the one that i found most resonant was um the chauvet cave in france and the, the the animals portrayed are so beautiful and so wonderful. Uh, Werner Herzog made a most beautiful film about the Chauvet Cave, and the right the British writer John Berger wrote about it. And something that he wrote really struck me. He it, it, one can't really go into those caves because the the atmosphere is so 
So um, the air is so dangerous, and also they're very heavily protected. But Berger and, and Werner Herzog were able to to go in for a short time, and Berger talked about about the beauty of these portrayals and said there was grace from the start, and that to me suggested the idea that that there was a human appreciation of the beauty of the natural world, which I found very touching. And, and because uh, so, so many ideas hinge on brutality and killing and, and so on. And that seemed a complete reversal, the idea that there were those who appreciated the beauty of the natural world from the start. I found that very moving. And when we think about the earliest people, um, they, we refer to them as hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes that does a bit of disservice to the gathering part because hunting was dangerous and difficult. That's right. And, and was, you know, was a part of their diet, and, and, but it was not easy to do. So gathering really was a huge part of their diet. You know, we hear about like the paleo diet and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah. It's just everybody eating meat. Like that's what people used to eat. And it's not true. No, that's absolutely not true because, as you say, the 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 cost of it in energy and and all the rest of it was far too great, and there seems very little reason why one why people then shouldn't do what was most straightforward, which was to gather. And of course, the, you know, the, there was a lot, and, and yeah, early I mean, studies of of um, of findings suggest that, you know, grain, fruit, nuts, and all the rest of it. So the paleo diet thing is nonsense. Something that I've been thinking a lot about lately as I get older, uh, is, and I, I, it, you touch on it quite a bit in your book, is the sense that the, the first peoples that lived where I live now uh, for thousands of years, they lived in harmony with the landscape and the yeah. ecosystem. They were part of it. And they were not apart from it. They were part of it. Yeah. And in our Western civilization, and especially now with this industrialized world that we live in with our our little separate boxes or large separate boxes in the case of a lot of homes around me, we just live uh, completely divorced from nature. Yeah. And uh, that, that to me is kind of the crux of the matter. Yes, that very much so. And that was one of the things that, you know, why, why, do, why do we live like this? Why have, and of course, you know, the, the, the huge crisis in species loss and loss of biodiversity. How, how did that happen? And of course, the only way to understand it is by finding out why we, why we believe that we could cause such destruction, you know, the kind of destruction that we have done. And uh, yeah, I find that all that extremely fascinating because, as far as as far as one can can understand it, and it seems very much backed up by evidence, is that the idea, particularly in Christianity, that if you have a soul, well, you were human. Humans had souls, and if you didn't have a soul, then you didn't matter very much, and therefore the humans could do anything they liked to the natural world with impunity. And it's that basic idea has really, you know, brought about what's 
what has happened today. Yes, and one of the chapters of your book is, is titled Souls. And yeah. uh, it's fascinating to consider, you know, the concept of soul. Uh, does it exist? Does it not exist? Does it only exist for humans? And it's interesting, you know, you do a remarkable research into the, the past and Christian attitudes. That There's a wide uh, array of opinions in Christian tradition as far as that yeah. goes. Yes, but when it comes down to it, I mean, even even now, I mean, I, you know, as I was um, doing the research for the book, you know, I would look at various contemporary Christian websites about, you know, their attitudes to, to say pets. And quite a lot of, it was very fascinating. Quite a lot of them were saying things like, um, you, you must, you know, your children will be upset when a pet dies and will ask you if they will see a, see the pet again in heaven. And you you can lie. I found a few a few websites like this saying you can tell them that they will, but of course they won't because there's no such thing as doggy heaven. And it's a very common attitude. We will go on, we will continue, but animals won't. And one of the fascinating things that I read in your book, too, that I hadn't really thought about, is how many in, in uh, prehistoric cultures, if you will, um, first peoples, there's so many burials where people are buried with animals and yeah, birds. That's, and that's fascinating to consider, you know, what was going on there. Again, you know, it's, it, some of it, you know, some of the symbolism is, you know, is known about, but some of it is very mysterious because of course one can't know but other burials somebody with with a hand resting on a pet dog i mean which is the i mean i don't know how many interpretations there could be but not many they seem to be gestures of affection and uh people being buried with creatures to whom they had been close in their lives which is a lovely thought i think yeah, and and that it goes back very deep in time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, a lot of early Middle Eastern burials. There was one at a place called Mal. Uh, what was it called? Anyway, in um, the Upper Galilee, where they found a woman with a with a puppy, and there are a lot of. I mean, in Scandinavian burials, a lot of bird wings, feathers, and that sort of thing, which are obviously symbolic, presumably to indicate flight and the passage of the soul, perhaps. One of the interesting things about any time you write a story or a book or, you know, even a, a, a newspaper article, one of the most challenging things is, is coming up with a title or a headline. Uh, tell me about the title of your book, Between Light and Storm. Um, what does that mean for you? Oh, what titles are the most incredibly difficult thing. Things to fix on. They really uh, are. What I hit on eventually with this one was the idea of that we live somewhere between enlightenment and destruction, which is, I think, I, I, I think possibly the place we're in at the moment. Oh, I, I think we most certainly are. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, uh, in many ways. 
one of the one of the things that uh, I found really uh, kind of struck me was a visit to a museum. Was it? Oh, I'm trying to remember. Was it in Glasgow? It was in Glasgow. Yeah. Could you t- tell us about what that museum meant to you when you were younger and your visit there that you portray in this book? Because I thought that was really quite fascinating. Well, the museum—it's it, this rather amazing uh, Victorian build, huge building, and. We used to go there a lot. It was not far from my school. And later when I was a teenager, I used to, we used to go there and sketch. And one of the things that, that stayed in my mind after I left Glasgow was they had galleries of animals and ethnography. And looking back on it, um, you know, I, I kind of remember these things. They, they, they refurbished the whole gallery in that when I went back, it was just the way the world was portrayed to people, and still is in many places. I mean, there's the, actually there's a lot of discussion now about various museums in this country about how other civilizations were portrayed, and that it was particularly um, interesting. There was a Lakota a ghost shirt in the, the Kelvin Grove Museum. And I remember it very well. And of course, you don't realize at the time when you're a child that that is still an artifact and what it meant, what it meant and what it means. In fact, it was, it has subsequently, fortunately, been given back. But when you trace the way things arrived in museums, how they were categorized, is so enlightening about, well, about the way that we look at other humans and other species. And in the case of that ghost shirt from the Lakota, yeah, wasn't yeah. that acquired from some, from someone who actually died in the Wounded Knee Massacre? That's right. That's right. <sighs> and it was sold by some, you know, it was acquired in some deeply nefarious way, which is actually the way vast numbers of artifacts are gathered for, for museums, particularly in this country. Well, and, and when we consider, you know, natural history museums, yeah, uh, and especially the 19th century and early 20th century, yeah. and a massive amount of killing went on to collect specimens for those museum collections. Oh, that's, that's right. I mean, in, uh, uh, well, all, all museums, but uh, yeah, it's absolutely astonishing numbers, completely astonishing. And we wonder why the natural world is depleted. I mean, just the lack of care, the lack of thought that went into these uh, these collections. And of you know, of course, you know, now a lot of them are being questioned on the way they're the way they're displayed and the way they're whether or not they need to be returned to to their origins and so on. But it's a very very profound question. And of course, you get into the topic of hunting, uh, hunt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have many family members and friends who love hunting. Uh, it's a deeply ingrained part of their lives, and I respect yeah. that. Um, and they're not trophy hunters. They are no, people no, no. who I mean, will, they're... you know, w- when they get a, you know, a, a particularly magnificent buck, you know, they're very proud of it. And they might, you know, mount the antlers and that kind of thing. But they do eat the meat from yeah. the deer that they kill. Whereas, you know, trophy hunting, that is a whole different Oh, no, trophy hunting is grotesque. And a, a lot of the kind of, well, it's not hunting that goes on in Scotland. I mean, it's it's what's called game shooting is oh, it's just absurd. It's crazy stuff. 
pheasants and, well, particularly pheasants, are imported into Scotland or into Britain in their millions. I mean, they're, they're brought in from factory farms in Poland, France and Poland. And these they're either brought in as, as birds or as um, eggs or poles. And they're raised by gamekeepers. And then when the shooting season starts, these creatures are released into the wild and men with very, well, mainly men with very expensive guns go and shoot them or try to shoot them, which is just, it's absolutely it's ruinous for our, you know, for our, our, for native wildlife. It's ruinous, obviously, for the creatures themselves. Ruinous for the landscape because it's got to be carefully tended. And um, Scotland's wild, wild raptor population has been virtually destroyed because, of course, gamekeepers kill the raptors in order to protect the birds that are then going to be shot. Oh, goodness. Well, I have a, I have a hawk, have several hawks that live in my neighborhood. And once in a while, they come visit my yard because they know we have bird feeders and bird baths here. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's pretty good pickings here. So I kind of have a... Um, a bit of a truce with the hawks where it's like, hey, if I'm around, I'm going to chase you off. But, yeah. you know, if you get, you happen to get one, you know, good for you. Yeah, that's the same. When you got to eat two. Yeah, when I had doves, you know, there were white doves, so obviously, you know, very, very obvious. You know, quite a lot of them and they used to fly about the place. And every now and again, I'd look out of the window and I'd think, hey, it's snowing and it would be May or whatever. And there'd be a sparrowhawk sitting there plucking a, a white dove. And, you know, as you say, they've got to make a living as well. And they're magnificent birds. Oh, they're beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, you you touch on some very interesting topics about what's going on around the world. We were talking about hunting. I had no idea how many uh, bird species are just killed almost like wantonly all over the world. It just kind of boggled my mind how many places. And I'm trying to remember the place. I think it's in northern Scotland where they go out to an island as part of their tradition. Can you tell us about that? Because that was like, wow, that's quite interesting. The gannet hunt. Um, Oh, yes. Yeah, that's in the Western Isles, uh, the one place in the Western Isles where they do this – and they well, one of the small Hebridean communities. They've they've done this for a long time, and it used to be that it was done for food, because very marginal communities, very poor communities, and uh, of course things are rather different now. There are supermarkets and all the rest of it, but this the the uh, the gannets are called in and Guga. So the Guga hunt is, I think it's th- something like 13 men go off and basically perch themselves in this rock in the middle of, of the sea for, I think, is it a four, something like four now. They have got a license from the Scottish government to take a certain number of birds and they've made it into a, a, a big thing. There is a whole lot of ritual to do with the killing and the salting and the... The preparation of these birds and it is insanely cruel they don't let anyone film it they don't let anyone know what goes on but basically they bash these birds to death um they bash them over the head and they 
bring them back to salt them and so on, bring them back to land. And they're distributed among the community and some of the um, Scottish communities in Canada and places still, you know, have got connections and they, they, um, they enjoy, for some reason or another, they, they eat the, these things, which are apparently absolutely disgusting. And this carries on because it's a tradition. It's tradition, and and you you write quite a bit about tradition yeah. in your book. Uh, that there are so many cultures with traditions, and going back for thousands of years, and it's like there's no way to realize like, well, the world we're living in now is not compatible with that tradition if we wanted to move forward in a in a sane way. No, it's insane. It's crazy, even in places where, well, certain species are are endangered. Tradition says that you go out and shoot. I mean, in lots of places, Italy, France, guys get dressed up in military fatigues, go out with big guns and shoot very small birds. Why? Yeah. I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't understand it. But it is the lack of thought about lots of species, lots of diversity. It's something that I very much wanted to draw attention to. Why do we do these things? Can we continue to do them? Well, it seems to me, I think a lot of it is we don't really think about those things the way the way you you challenge people to do in in your book. It's just, well, that's what we do. That's what we've always done. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of thought about, is this the right thing to do now? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I, I don't think we've got time to do that anymore. I think we're running out. We're running out of time. We're running out of species. We're running out of the world, and we just can't carry on doing it. But I don't know how you stop. Yeah. One of the depressing aspects of the story, and uh, something that you know, I think about almost every day, is like, what, what kind of natural world will be left for my grandchildren? Exactly. Exactly. And uh, one of the things I've, I found really f- fun about reading your book and just kind of change subject a bit here is uh, I love words and, and rich vocabulary. You have a very rich vocabulary. And there were times when I was like, Oh, I've never seen that word before. What does that? And I, I would figure out what it meant and you know, I could go Google it or whatever, but I would try to figure out what does this mean in the context of what she's saying? You have an incredibly rich vocabulary. How did that all come about? Oh, I, I've been a writer for ages. I, I was a writer of short stories before I started writing about the natural. I, I, I love words. I love you know. I really, I really love writing, and I'm kind of you know like to do it. You know, I'll try to do it in a sort of try to do it properly. Try to do it in a, in a seemly way. Yeah, no, they're not unnecessarily, um, but I, I enjoyed that about it. The yeah. book is like. Ooh, you know, I found myself going, well, that's a, there's a, it's not often that I get to run into a new word used or, or a word used in a way I'm not used to. And it's like, this is very cool. So I, I really enjoyed that. Oh, that, I'm, I'm really glad. <laughs> it means the effort's paid off. Thank you. If you're just joining us, our guest is UK author Esther Wolfson, and we're talking about her new book, Between Light and Storm, which focuses on our at times fraught relationships with the animal life on our planet. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot.
And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with Esther Wolfson, author of the new book, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species. Okay, well, let's talk about a couple of other chapters that before we let you go. Uh, the coat. Yes. You know, the, the fur trade. And I haven't really thought about this much lately because I don't see furs anymore. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's it, very interesting because for years and years and years, uh, you know, fur was a thing. And, you know, I remember uh, any time I was... When I was a kid, you know, that was a yeah, big status right. thing. You, know, you got a woman a mink coat. That's that's right. And I mean, I you know, used to see it here. Um, and then that it started to be the thing that, you know, some of the famous designers, the big designers, you know, stopped using fur and everyone went, oh, that's fine, it's over. And I discovered that it wasn't. I started looking into it and the fur trade, I mean, places like, well, particularly Russia, China, amazingly enough, the Middle East. It's a huge, huge demand for fur. And, of course, it's got to come from somewhere. And the fur trade in Scandinavia in particular, in fact, since I wrote that, it has changed rather because COVID destroyed the fur trade in in, um, Denmark because, of course, fur animals get COVID. Oh, yeah. And they destroyed... did away with the, you know all their mink. The interesting thing thing about that was that it was quite obvious for a long time beforehand that the fur trade is a possible source of a pandemic because of the way that creatures are reared. And um, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, it continues to be a worrying thing because the trade has very. I mean, it's been kind of pushed out a bit in in Europe closing down in various countries but it's moving to places where where it's even less regulated like russia and china and again i mean i you know i really do fear that the next pandemic will come from a fur farm oh that's frightening to think of and uh it also makes me think of another aspect of this story is uh food and the modern factory farm model which is just an environmental catastrophe Totally. Uh, when you look at it, you know, pig pig farming operations that are on a massive scale, uh, poultry operations, uh, you've got birds that really aren't anything like a natural turkey that's, that people that... consume for their Thanksgiving meal. Um, it's not like mom and pop and the, you know, the the family farm with some animals and, you know, you kill the animals and you that's eat right. them or butcher them and sell them in the village. It's a whole different thing. It's hideous. It really is. And, of course, in Britain at the moment, we've got rampaging bird flu, which, of course, mm-hmm. comes from the poultry trade. Yeah. And it's affected wild, wild birds. And all along the coasts, all our, you know, our seabirds are, are, are dying. It's, it, it, it's, it's terrible. But that's, I mean, it, I don't think, I really don't think that people have, you know, I mean, the, the, the cruelty aspect. I mean, there's so many aspects, the pollution aspect. But as I say, I mean, all the way, funny, all the way through writing this book, you know, I'd be looking at papers to do with all sorts of things. And I would come across something to do with zoonotic diseases and possible mm-hmm. pandemics. I mean, so much was written, has been written about it. And virtually everything that, that I wrote about, there were implications, or, you know, for 
the possibility of, of a pandemic. And then it was just after I finished the book that, that COVID got going. And I was so unsurprised about it because it, because it was bound to happen. Yeah. And it's bound to happen again. Yeah. Well, you kind of close the book off with something that I found very interesting about, you know, what, what is it, what does love mean when we talk about animals, you know, and what does it mean yeah. to say, you know, I'm an animal lover, I'd love, you know, animals. Yeah, that's... And, and there was something, um, and I'm, I hope I get this right, uh, the concept of umwelt, umwelt. Oh, that's uh, right. What What is that? I, I read that about is... that, I was like, ooh, that's interesting, and it came from yeah, an uns, a, a strange source, really. That's right. The Uva, that was um, a guy, I, I never know how to pronounce his name, Jakob von Uxel. Who, I'm glad um, you tried to pronounce yeah. it because I was going to butcher it, I knew. Yeah, I know, it was a, a very it's, difficult. Thanks for taking and, one for the team there, Esther. <laughs> and he devised or evolved this concept of the Uva, and he said that everything had its own Uvelt, its own, its own world, its own like a sort of bubble in which it lived uh, of of its own consciousness and and its own way of seeing things and you know he applies it to you know various types of humans you know physicists have their own umwelt and so on. and it's such a beautiful concept because it is one that that you know means that if you think about it enough it demands that you respect others umwelt and you know the you know their their um, their lives and and the totality of their lives and consciousness. Yeah, and you know we we tend to anthropomorphize things. You know, humans do that, and so we you know we love the cute and cuddly creatures. Yep. You know anything that's we you know consider beautiful. Um, yeah. You you know, but like a deer for perhaps, but the the ugly ones, you know, they have such an important place in nature and play, you know, such important roles. You know, even things that we might not like, like ticks and mosquitoes yep. and things like that. Everything has its place in that natural order. And, you know, of course, we're really good at upsetting that. But uh, I just found it interesting to think, to think about because I have to challenge myself sometimes to think instead of thinking, ew, yuck, that spider there. Think, yeah. you know, that spider's got a cool life and I'm going to save it because it's in my bathtub. I actually, well, we don't have any, you know, any sort of, you know, majorly large or dangerous spiders. Yes, I suppose it's easy for me to say, but I would ban the, I would. Outlaw the word "cute" if I could. It is hugely damaging mm -hmm. to to species. Most oh, money, you know, when people are raising money for conservation, like you know, the World Wildlife Fund or something, they get money for cute species. They don't for non-cute species. How crazy is that? Something that is vitally important will not get the funding because it doesn't look nice. And it just betokens the utter, utter facileness of human human beings and their attitudes towards other species. I think. I think so too. And uh, it it also is as I get older and think about nature and how in in endangered nature is, uh, and I keep trying to connect to it and do whatever I can, like you know, talking to people like you. Uh, is that you know ev everything that I see? If it's alive, it's it's special and precious, you know, in its own little yeah. umwelt bubble. Yep. 
Yes, totally. And uh, you know, that was, uh, I said I wrote a book about urban species. Urban species are despised because humans seem to believe that these creatures, gulls or fo urban foxes or whatever, are usurping our space. People are unable to see that the reason they're there is because either we usurp their space or, like in the case of gulls, it's because we've depleted the life of the sea and we're forcing them inland. You know, there's so little ability to connect what we do with, well, with the consequences. I had yeah. a discussion with a, I overheard a woman in a pet shop asking the person, the assistant, what she should do because there are a whole lot of crows in her garden. She'd never had crows before. And I kind of stuck my nose in and, and asked her about I, I would imagine that perked you up. Yes, yes. And I said, Tell oh, she lived in a particular place where they had just completed the building of a large ring road, which involved the cutting down of lots and lots of trees. So I said to her, well, I suspect that these birds' trees have gone and they're looking for somewhere else to go. And she looked, said, is there anything I can do? I said, no, absolutely nothing. I said to her, did you want the road? Oh, yes. Well, that's a consequence. Yeah. She was very, very displeased with me about it. Well, good for you. <laughs> that's, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of people that don't think about the unintended yeah. consequences for the yeah. things that they want. Yep. Well, uh, there's also, uh, kind of on the same topic, uh, the praise song for unloved animals. Oh, by, yeah. Um, what's her name, Margaret? Um, Reichley, yeah. Reichley. That, that, that was, I thought that was very cool because we really do need to open our minds and our, and our hearts and our souls, however you want to look at it, to all, all creatures, great and small, whether yep. they're cute and cuddly to you and your, your nursery book, you know, mentality, yep. or you can, you know, be, uh, be a part of nature and realize they all have their place and their special, you know, part of it. Well, that's right. I mean, they've just concluded COP15 in uh, Canada. And I hope, I mean, I haven't had a chance to read what, What's happened, but you know, you think it, it it demands so much good goodwill, you know, apart from money and all the rest of it. It just demands so much from people. Are they going to do it? Are they going to give it? You don't know. One cannot know. Well, it's quite a it's it's quite a, a mindset change you have to go through to to realize that diversity is so important, and that you know the short term economy economy that everybody worries about. You know, because they, we obviously need to, you know, eat and sleep and have a place, a roof yeah. over our heads and all that stuff. Um, but that economy cannot persist without the diversity of the natural world. That's right. I mean, there's so much short-term thinking about it. And I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what one does. I, you know, apart from you know, doing the little that one can, writing or whatever, you know, polemicizing well, in one way or another. When you uh, want to kind of uh, go out and enjoy being in the natural world and connect, um, what are some of the things you like to do to, you know, get your mind back to a good place, you know, from you know, when, because it can get overwhelming when you think about yeah, how, that, the big picture. Well, just actually just, I mean, I, you know, I very much enjoy um, urban wildlife and I really, really like wondering about 
any city and watching what's going on on the rooftops and watching what's going on just at my feet because I don't think that one has got to, I don't think that the exotic matter, I don't think that you have to travel. I think that it's just the loveliest thing is to appreciate what's really on your doorstep. And is is there a big takeaway that you've had from researching this book? Um, what what is like maybe one of the main lessons, to, if if that's the right way to put it? Um, something that you learned that surprised you, or something that you know makes you feel like like you did something really good by writing this book? Well, just I mean, you know, if if you know, if anybody says to me, oh, you know, oh, I've you know, I've changed my view about oh, particularly say crows. Oh, I didn't know they could do this. I passed one the other day and I realized, and I think, yeah, well, that's very nice. That's, you know, if you can change one, if you can help one person to see that the world is, you know, much bigger, much broader, more beautiful, that's great. Well, I certainly enjoyed reading Between Light and Storm. And uh, thank you for writing it because I know, you know, writing a book like this is a tremendous amount of work. How long did it take you to write this? Five years. Oh yeah, and it's it, it it's so extensive. You know, you travel you travel all over the world through the book and through time. Uh, it's just quite amazing. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. And it's a beautiful book. It's it's uh, sad and challenging at times, but it's it's beautiful. Yeah, but I I'll end this on on a chapter called "Of What Is Love," because that's the most important thing. And uh, wh- how would you define that for you in terms of how you feel about the animals uh, in your world? Well, I look at I, I look at the ones that that uh, you know I kept and my family kept, and I realised that you know in a way we borrow their lives, and I, I you know I, I'm I'm grateful to them, and I think you know if I in any way didn't give them the kind of life that they might have had, you know I, I regret it, but. If I've been able to, you know, to use their their lives and their experiences to, you know, enlighten myself and other people, then perhaps it was worth it. Esther Wolfson, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this incredible book, Between Light and Storm: How We Live with Other Species. And uh, I just best of luck to you. Do you have a plans for another book coming up, or working on anything? I kind of do. Yeah, I kind yeah. of do. Anything yeah. you want to share? <laughs> you want to keep that shelved for now? Yeah, I will let you know as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's a planning stage. Esther, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this wonderful book. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to our guest, Esther Wolfson. You can get her new book, Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species, at most booksellers. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never have to miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.